Frances Haugen just wanted to sleep at night when she shared with the world internal documents from Facebook that showed the social networking giant knew its products were damaging teenagers' mental health, undermining democracy and fanning ethnic violence, but did little to stop it. She worked as a product manager on the Civic Integrity Team at Facebook for two years and became a whistleblower in an effort to bring transparency and accountability to big tech. Other insiders felt frustration too, but Frances Haugen did something about it, and her new memoir reveals the small steps and perseverance over the course of her life that led to her taking the giant step of going public. The book is called The Power of One, How I Found the Strength to Tell the Truth and Why I Blew the Whistle on Facebook. And Frances Haugen joins me now. Hi. Hello. Thank you for having thank you for inviting me. Nice to talk to you. This book's all about following your heart and listening to your conscience and how you're able to draw on experiences through your life to do that. Why choose that as the topic for your first book? You know, I, I when we talk about things like technology, it can be, feel, be very easy to feel powerless. Like when I, I, I've spent a lot of time over the last two years, you know, having the honor of getting to talk to people about what, what, they, what they feel, what they think about social media. And the thing that I hear over and over again is, 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 you know, people say things that sound really powerless. They're like, is there, is there any hope? Like, is there any ability? What's the point of trying? Like they're too, the, the big tech companies are too big. There's too many incentives that are aligned, not towards the common good. And, and the thing I, I, that strikes me about this is like, you know, I've, I've had, um, you know, I, I can now say with the, the wisdom of hindsight, like the privilege of, of getting experience being pretty, pretty powerless, right? So like at my weakest, um, you know, I had to relearn the walk. Um, my husband had left me. I had lost my job at Google because uh, my manager didn't, thought I was faking being sick. Like, like think about all the things that, you know, um, I, you know, th- th- think of your nightmare scenarios of mm. being powerless. I was like living through almost all of them at the same time. And the thing I learned from that experience is that we always have agency you know, our choices matter that, you know, the way the world changes or the way we as individuals change is by just, you know, waking up every morning and deciding you are going to change or the world is going to change. Um, and so I really wanted to help people reclaim the idea that we, we do have power and that the way the world changes is that we change it. And so that's why I wanted to focus on that for my first book. You you said you spent your lifetime trying to be small. So what changed when you became big and blew the whistle on Facebook? You know, it's interesting. Like um, someone asked me, I don't know, a month ago, like what was the number one thing I was grateful for from the experience of blowing the whistle? And and the thing I told her was like, you know, I, I, I did spend a huge amount of my life trying to not draw attention to myself you know like i i grew up in the midwest and there is a a very deep you know um inherited cultural thing that comes out of scandinavia around Mm. like you know you should never be so arrogant as to believe you're special (laughs) and and um uh which is a thing that I, i didn't even know was like a common thing until i studied abroad in sweden in um in college and i was like oh the midwest suddenly makes sense um, hmm. but, uh, you know, I, I spent so much time, you know, just trying to stay in my lane and being forced to step out and, and have to defend what I believe, you know, it's been a very liberating experience. 
And I think it's one of these things where um, I saw that the consequences of silence were so high. You know, I, I uh, for a lot of people who speak English, they don't appreciate that Facebook is much, much cleaner and much, much safer in English than it is in any other language in the world. Huh. Or that Facebook Facebook went, like they, they know they're an American company. They can get regulated in the United States. So they spend much, much, much more uh, on safety for English, even though only eight or 9% of users speak English. And so I, I, I joined Facebook and I find out, you know, Facebook is basically the internet for a couple billion people in the world. You know, they went into the most fragile places in the world and said, you know, if you use our products, your data is free. If you use anything else, you're going you're to have to pay for it. And so the internet converged onto Facebook. You know, people don't have independent shops. They use Marketplace. They don't have their own websites. They use pages. Mm. You know, there aren't necessarily newspapers. They're just mega, mega groups. So all of the vulnerabilities of Facebook are, are amplified because there aren't any checks and balances. Um, so I, I come to Facebook, I learn this intense truth, like the idea that people are becoming literate to use Facebook, you know, kind of uh, makes you question, can media literacy really be the answer when like people are becoming literate to use a digital product, right? Um, I, and and suddenly I realized, oh my goodness, like there's only a small number of people in the world who really understand what's going on. And there's a real chance that if I don't stand up, you know, I'm going to lay in bed in 20 years and, and, and watch the consequences of these choices today playing out and know that I could have done something and didn't. And so I, 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 I felt in many ways like Facebook had taken my future from me, right? That, that I didn't have a choice whether to act or not act because if I didn't act, like I would, I would still pay the costs of it in the future. Yeah. Was there a single moment, a turning point? Hmm. Uh, there was. So uh, in the uh, in December of 2020, so this is right after the uh, U.S. 2020 presidential election or national election, one might say, um, I, Facebook dissolved the group that they had founded after the 2016 election um, to keep people safe. So they founded this group called Civic Integrity that was intended to make sure that Facebook was a positive force in the world. And uh, they called us all together on a Zoom call and told us we were so important that we were going to be integrated into other parts of the company. And that was the moment when I realized that that it was very unlikely that Facebook could save itself. Mm-hmm. That uh, when I was in graduate school, um, so I have, I have an MBA from Harvard. When I was in graduate school, I took this class on change management, which sounds like a you know, cliche business school class, you know, it's like, <laughs> oh, you, yeah. you, you, you want to be a consultant when you grow up. Um, and, uh, but, but it, it's interesting, like, it's this, it's this well-established academic field of, you know, uh, it's hard enough for individuals to change, you know, it's next to impossible for groups of people to change. And one of the things you have to do is you have to appoint a vanguard and say, these people are the future. You know, they're they're the living embodiment of our, our strategy of what what the change is going to look like when it plays out. You know, you can either get with them, you can get behind them or, you know, get out of the way. Um, and Facebook did that for four years. And in the wake of the 2020 election, I think that I think the um, accumulating truths that civic integrity had been unearthing uh, began to be seen as a liability. And so, but I, I don't know, you know, I'm not an executive, 
But when I saw them uh, dissolve our team, it became obvious to me that, that Facebook wasn't willing to commit the resources in an ongoing way to be the change that was needed. What you talk a bit about the, um, you know, the um, political um, fallibility mm -hmm. of uh, Facebook there, and the, and some of the um, misinformation. There's also what was brought brought to light thanks to you was um, that Facebook knew about some of the mental health impacts on teenage mm -hmm. girls in particular. Mm -hmm. um, and in the book, you share the story about the girlfriend of a member of your debate team who died from mm -hmm. complications tied to bulimia. Can I ask when, mm -hmm. when you know someone who suffers from mm. mental health or who has been um, actually lost their life due to uh, a disease like that, does that take it out of the realm of academic and into mm. something personal? You know, it's it, it's the thing that's so interesting about that story is um, so so to catch your readers up uh, or your listeners up, um, I write about in the book how when I was in high school. There was a woman who was regularly in the the, the, the the team room of our debate team, you know, after school, who uh, one day just died, you know, just out of the blue, she died of a heart attack. And it's because she had bulimia and it can make your electrolytes be out of whack. And I was speaking at a conference for mom influencers. So it's called Mom 2.0. It's the largest gathering of mom influencers in the world. And I, I was on this panel and... I recounted that story for the first time. Like I'd never told that story in public. Mm. And I realized that I was still upset about it. Like, I don't know, 20 years later. Um, and, and so one of the things that I, I often uh, point out to parents particularly is it's easy for parents to say, you know, my kid is okay. Like I have a really good relationship with my kid. I know what my kid sees on social media. I know my kid is okay. And the thing I always remind people is, you know, I, our kids are so interconnected, you know, like if, if I can still, you know, realize I, I still heard about this, you know, like I hadn't thought about it in 15 years, you know, I hadn't thought about it in a long time. I, uh, you know, think, think of, uh, can you say with confidence, all of your kids' friends are equally okay. Mm. You know, like that's why we have to like have these conversations about how to fix social media. I'm talking to Frances Haugen. Facebook whistleblower. Her book is called The Power of One, How I Found the Strength to Tell the Truth and Why I Blew the Whistle on Facebook. Um, back to some of the content in your book in a moment, Francis. I just have mm. to ask, I often hear from parents, um, hey, we shouldn't take smartphones away from teenagers. We mm. just have to teach them how to use them properly. What is your view on, on that, um, I guess, uh, that perspective? Mm. So, you know, the teenage years are actually a really long swath of time, right? Like there's a huge difference. So anyone who's interacted with a teenager knows there's a huge difference between an 18-year-old and a 14-year-old and a 12-year-old or a 10-year-old. And, you know, I think it's it's fairly clear uh, that, you know, an 18-year-old should have access to social media, right? Like they need to be developing the habits of self-sufficiency so mm. they can go out into the world and navigate all these things on their own. The The thing that's kind of scary, and um, not all parents are aware of this, is that, you know, kids as young as eight are on, eight, six even, are on social media. And they have the ability to hide the ability to be on social media. So, you know, you might look at your kid's phone and not see Instagram on there, but there are apps that allow you to cloak 
um, applications with things like, uh, you know, you think that it's a calculator, but really it's Instagram. Yeah. So, so there's these interesting questions around, you know, what should be the default rules of the road, you know, uh, built in at the level of a platform, because parents may not actually even get to make choices around the kinds of relationships they want their kids to have on these systems. And, and I, the thing that I get nervous on is um, when you look at the data, the danger zone, or there's like two danger zones, but the, the biggest danger zone is kids between the ages of 10 and 10 and 13. So when kids go through puberty, their brains begin to change. They get more uh, social reward neurotransmitters. So that's things like dopamine, oxytocin. Mm-hmm. And they're just a lot more vulnerable to the kinds of behavior change that social media can induce. You know, they, they take much more seriously. They feel much more intensely uh, social validation, uh, social cri- criticism. And it has a bigger impact on them. Like, you know, you can have a kid be on social media when they're, you know, 11 and they can stop using it and you can still see an uh, impact on the data when they're 16. Mm. And so um, I, I think there we we need to have a really serious conversation about should should under 13 year olds have access to these platforms? And my personal sentiment would be no. And I, the last thing I would leave parents with is, um, you know, one really, really easy big, big, big mover is kids should charge their phones in their parents' bedrooms at night because one of the the most basic, but one of the most serious impacts of these platforms is is sleep quality, right? That, you know, a kid staying up till two, you know, they're going to do worse in school. They're going to be at higher risk for a bunch of harms, everything from, um, depression and anxiety to things like bipolar or schizophrenia, like serious mental health stuff, um, to be at higher risk for substance use, you know, uppers because they're tired, downers because they're depressed, uh, to accidents, you know, kids are sleepier. So it's not just more automotive accidents, it's accidents of all kinds. So lowest hanging fruit, kids should not be online after midnight. Doesn't matter if they're 17 or if they're 10, you know, at a minimum, I think we should be able to agree on that part. Does the company know how to make Facebook and Instagram safer, but choose not to do it? So part of why um, I made sure the disclosures were so robust, so it's uh, over 20,000 pages of documents, um, was that, and again, it's not just the documents, it's the comments from employees in real time with these documents. Uh So you can see that the employees, as they read through these things, they thought they were real. Um, part of why they're so robust is, is I wanted people to see how wide the palette of solutions is. You know, we've been told by these companies, the only way to solve these, any, any of these problems is through censorship. When in reality, Facebook knows a lot of tools and some of them are, are super simple. It's things like, should you have to click on a link to reshare it, reshare something? Uh, should you be able to do infinitely long chains of reshares. So a reshare of a reshare of a reshare of a reshare without someone having to make a conscious intentional choice to post that again. Mm. You know, you, you can come in and say, Hey, we're going to let you say anything you want. It can be a conspiracy. It can be, uh, it can be fake news. It can be hate speech, but you have to choose to say it. You know, you have to copy and paste it into the share box. 
And, and what's crazy about that is if you cut those reshare chains, when they get beyond like a friend of a friend, mm. that has the same impact on misinformation as the entire third party fact checking program. <laughs> only, only, only it works in every language. And we're not, it's not about picking and choosing good and bad ideas, you know? So there's a lot of options out there. Facebook likes to say there's no consensus about the harms. Um, what's your mm, view on that? Mm-hmm. Oh, that it's it's oh, bless their hearts. So one of the things that's so <laughs> one of the things that's that's so frustrating about Facebook is um, uh, to give uh, context to your listeners out there. Um, in order to really understand what's the impact of these platforms, you need to be able to run experiments using the platforms or you need access to raw data from the platforms. You know, like if you let academics be able to actually use the tools that are at Facebook's disposal for six months, we could in a very definitive way say things like, hey, this is how many hours a day is safe for a child to use, yeah. you know, for a 15-year-old or, or for an adult, you know, how many hours a day is safe to use? Um, and, and Facebook could could have at any point in the last 10 years said, hey, I want to facilitate that research. And they don't because they're afraid of what the answer is. So I, I, the, the reason why we don't have a have definitive answers on like, this is what's safe, what amount is safe, is because Facebook doesn't want the public to have those answers because then we demand action. Can I ask, by the way, Francis, what was the single mm-hmm. most ner- mm-hmm. nervous moment for you in this whole whistleblowing mm. process? Interesting. I think right before, like right at the end, so so um, a huge fraction of all the docs were collected in only the last couple of weeks I was there. Um, and uh, once I really had, like as I got further and further into the documentation process, like I, I began to be more and more aware of just how big and sprawling the problem was, right? Like I, I knew something was wrong when I started. Um, by the time I was, had, you know, gotten a good chunk of the way through documenting it, I was like, this is so much worse than I, than even I thought it was. Right. Um, and, and that period of time was super scary for me because I knew that there was only going to be one chance at being able to let the public know, right. That if Facebook, uh, discovered what I was doing, uh, before I was done, like no one was ever going to get to try again. And, and that kind of sense of responsibility was really, really hard um, because, you know, imagine you're thinking about consequences that could be as serious as, as you know, ethnic violence, right? You know, we've seen by that point, there had been two major ethnic violence incidences that had been attributed to Facebook. Um, you know, imagine you're like, oh, there may be no one who ever gets to try to tell the story again. Um, I That was definitely the period of time that was like the most nerve-wracking because it was like well i have to be successful then i just wanted to mention the march 2019 attacks on mosques in christchurch here in new zealand it was live streamed on facebook for 17 minutes some of the documents you obtained talk about that attack um, described it as a watershed moment for facebook live Mm -hmm. what changed after that Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the major wake-up calls for Facebook um, was, uh, so Facebook took down the Christchurch um, video. So it was live streamed, um, but then the video stayed up for a while longer. And it stayed up until the police in New Zealand asked Facebook to take it down. So so Facebook wasn't even aware yet 
that this was up there. It had to be told by an outside party. And I think that was like a, a major wake up call because it made them aware that, you know, they had created a very powerful, a very seductive tool that uh, they had only minimal control over. Um, and uh, what's interesting is, you know, one of the details that kind of, I, I think in some ways illuminates how um, Facebook is, is not willing to invest the energy in imagining how its products can be misused. Part of why it didn't get up to the level of having a human at Facebook look at it was there was only um, an option for flagging for expedited review, you know, like a faster review um, if someone had committed suicide on the platform, not if someone had murdered someone else on the platform. And so it's it's one of these things where, you know, if they had had a ro robust, um, you know, threat modeling exercise take place before they launched that product, um, they would have almost certainly said, oh, there's there's actually a larger space of potential misuse and, and then better prepared for when that happened. Can I ask how much blame you lay at the feet of Mark Zuckerberg for the culture and product he's created? Mm. Well, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has a very unique uh, role to play in this whole narrative in that, uh, you know, unlike any other big tech company, he has complete unilateral control. So he has now over 55% of all the voting shares for Facebook. Um, you know, at Google, there was a similar dual class share structure um, to what Facebook has, but there were two people that held those shares, you know, Larry and Sergey. And if at, for any of your listeners that has ever been married, you, you know that having to <laughs> reconcile reality yeah. with even one other person, you know, you get a lot closer to reality than if it's just like you hanging out there by yourself. Um and so I, I, I think one of the, the really unfortunate things about the current situation at Facebook is, you know, in a world where there are literally no checks and balances on Mark Zuckerberg, a culture has emerged where the people who get to be near him in the power structure are people who are good at making him feel good. You know, there's, you know, no human being would want yeah. to find out that their life's work was hurting other people. Yeah. Right. And and that's, you know, Mark's been working on this since he was 19 years old. And so um, I, I think there is a real challenge where I think it'll be very difficult for Facebook to address its problems until there is real meaningful accountability for the, the people who leave Facebook. Your book's called The Power of One. I wonder if that refers as much to yourself and your own journey as to Mark Zuckerberg and, and his power mm. to make a difference here. I, I always like to say I, I am convinced that within Mark, there is the power for greatness. You know, he's he's only 39, right? He has like infinite money. Like he could go and decide I'm going to solve malaria mm -hmm. and do that in his lifetime. And I, I think one of the things that I, why I wrote this book was I, I, you know, it's so easy to feel fatalism. I'm sure sometimes Mark probably feels fatalism. You know, he's like, oh, there's there's no way we could run the company any other way. And the reality is we all have within us the capacity to change. We all have the capacity to, to wake up and say, I want to do something differently. And I, 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 hope, I hope that's the lesson of Mark takes sermon as well. What a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for your courage and for um, doing what you've done to educate the world on what's going on inside these big tech firms. The book is called The Power of One, How I Found the Strength to Tell the Truth and why I blew the whistle on Facebook, and I've been speaking to the author, Francis Haugen. Thanks, Francis. 
My pleasure. Have a great day.